Good morning, church family. I'm in Denver, Colorado this weekend, visiting my son, Seth, and his wife, Shelby, for the first time since they married in May. Kim and I are blessed to be worshiping with them this morning at Red Rocks Church. You have the privilege this morning of hearing from Matt Casey, who's the Regional Director for Campus Outreach, a ministry which focuses on reaching and discipling college students at IU, Purdue IUPUI, and the University of Southern Indiana. Matt is our Impact Partner of the Month, and he has deep community church roots. In fact, he came to faith the summer before his freshman year of college while attending our church, and he still has many strong relationships in our community. I had the privilege of being part of Matt's discipleship journey while he was in college, meeting weekly with him in the summers as we went through some discipleship training materials. I remember sitting down at our kitchen table and studying the Bible and praying together. Of course, after Kim and I had put our kids to bed. I had no idea that one day, years later, one of those kids, our middle child John, would grow up, go to IU, experience all the faith challenges that college has to offer, and find himself across the table in Bloomington studying the Bible with Matt Casey. And it would be guys from Campus Outreach who would become his closest friends. It is this type of intentional relationship-building discipleship that Matt, his wife Brittany, and his team at Campus Outreach continue to model. And it is Matt's passion for sharing the hope of Jesus and meeting students where they are in the midst of their pursuits that may not have anything to do with Jesus that has been inspiring. This morning, Matt will continue in our series on the parables, and he brings with him a deep understanding of God's Word, a clear perspective on the challenges of our current cultural moment, and a contagious love for Jesus. Would you please welcome Matt this morning? Hey, good morning, friends. I have in my notes to give an introduction to myself, but Jason did it, so I'll just skip that. That was great. Um, let's see. As I, I'll do some introductions, if you want to turn to your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Um, my name, as Jason said, my name is Matt Casey and grew up on the south side of Indianapolis here in Greenwood, went to Center Grove High School and uh, in a relatively church-going family from time to time we would go to church um, consistently or inconsistently during different seasons and um, don't need to do anything real quick. Is that better? Okay, um, so relatively off and on church-going uh, background. By the time I got to middle school, uh, I would have said I'm not, a, I'm not kind of a spiritual person, so I started working in the mornings and didn't go to church for a long period of time. And then I got to the end of high school and began to feel, I don't know if you felt this along your uh, faith journey, but uh, the sense of Ecclesiastes when uh, Song of Sol- or Sol- Solomon begins to write about life And he says, my life feels like it's on repeat or chasing after the wind is the word that he would use. And so I began to feel that way about the things I was doing, the job I had, the friendships I had, the relationships I had, and began to think about all that I accomplished uh, relationally in high school would just quickly be forgotten by so many people. So I began to ask, uh, what am I here for? Or for what purpose do I exist in this world? And it was I met a pastor here at Community Church of Greenwood my senior year of high school who began to meet with me and share the gospel with me. And the summer before heading off to college, uh, actually saw my need for a savior, Jesus, and put my faith and hope and trust in him and uh, became a Christian my uh, freshman, basically my freshman year of college. And a couple summers returning back, I met Jason Gallman along the way, and we did a couple summers together going through some discipleship curriculum. And I would uh, attribute most of my 
beginnings of a foundation in the Christian life to those uh, times with Jason. He's a phenomenal teacher, and he usually answers your questions. If you ask him a question spiritually, he usually kicks it back at you. And I've been using this uh, method for the last 15 years, and he says, well, that's a great question. What do you think? Or how would you begin to answer that question? And I don't know if you guys have been across the table from him when he does that. But he just taught me how to think. Instead of just sitting across the table and telling me answers, he would, ha- he would require me to ask questions and begin to think through some answers to those questions I had. So endlessly thankful for Jason and his investment in me all those years. And endlessly thankful for the Community Church, part- Community Church of Greenwood partnership that we've had. So came to faith through this church, was uh, grown in this church. And then when I sensed a call to, to go serve in ministry at the end of my time in college, uh, one of my first uh, financial partners along the way. And for the last 15 years, CCG has been so generous to us um, all these years and a continued faithful uh, uh, giving and praying partner on the work that we do. So as Jason said, I work for a campus ministry called Campus Outreach. We serve at four schools here in the state of Indiana, uh, the two Big Tens, Purdue and IU, uh, a small fun school in Evansville called the University of Southern Indiana where I went and got my degree, uh, and then also locally here at IEPY. So we have staff that serve at each of those schools. And our aims are basically fourfold. We have four priorities four uh, parts of our mission. The first one is that we begin with evangelism. And so we don't necessarily come to a campus and kind of wave a Christian flag and say, if you're a Christian, come into our fellowship. We begin by befriending lots of people. Most of them aren't Christians. And that's our, that's our pool of friendships that we begin with. And so we do that in a lot of different ways. We throw big basketball tournaments and we throw big events. And even uh, this past Friday at IPY, we threw an event called Volley Boo, where they get a bunch of girls to uh, get teams and uh, get costumes and play volleyball in costumes and it's a lot of fun. Uh, but it's from those relationships that are built that we begin to uh, share the gospel. So our, our, first e, our first priority is evangelism. We want to sit across the table from people and share the hope of Jesus to them. Uh, but when God inevitably uh, works and people become Christians and people begin to want to follow after Christ, we don't just leave them there, but we move into establishing, which is what Jason and I did all those years ago beginning how to read the Bible, beginning how to study the scriptures, meet with God's people, go to church, uh, begin the basics of the Christian life, and then inevitably they begin to be a burden for those around them that they're friends with or on their sports team and their sorority and their fraternity, and they ask, how do I begin to share what God has done in my life with other people? And so we move to our fourthy, or thirdy, which is equipping, so teaching them how to do the hands of ministry around those that they're with. Uh, and then inevitably, after three, four, five, six years, uh, they all graduate. So they all leave. Imagine being a pastor of a church or planting a church where every four years everybody's gone and it's new people. That's college ministry. And uh, we always think with the end in mind, they're not going to be with us forever. They're going to be somewhere else. So how can we export them in a way that uh, will set them up for years of fruitfulness in life? Um, and so that's the work that we do. We've been doing it for the last 15 years, and we couldn't do it without you. So thank you for your faithful and generous partnership in the gospel together. We're continuing in the parable series. Uh, and Jason, in the introductory series, uh, looking at the parables, um, had this definition of a parable, which I thought stuck and has a lot of legs to it. So we'll talk about it real quick. Um, but parables make you do the work that allows Jesus to work in and through you. Parables do the work that make it, uh, or allow Jesus to work in and through you. And for the longest time, I always thought parables were just a story with a point, okay? So, and a lot of people will say, if you read commentaries on what a parable is, they'll say it's a story with a point. And that's true, but I'm 39 years old now, and I've been around lots of people for a long period of time. I have lots of friend, friends uh, in this life stage, and the thing that I would have noticed about our lives 
is how easy it is to be lulled into the same old thing and the same old thing and the same old thing. And people in Jesus' day were able to do that or as well be lulled into the same old thing followed by the same old thing and the same old thing. And parables are not just stories with a point, though they are that, they're more than that. When Jesus tells a story, a parable, he's usually addressing an audience who's been lulled into the doing the same old things after the same old things. And they're just little uh, kicks to get you off your equilibrium. Every time you read a parable, you should be kind of caught off guard a little bit and noticing I'm doing the same old things and the same old things. And then you read a parable and it's like, oh, uh, I need to be shaken out of that and woken up. Um, And that's the point of the parable. So I love Jason's definition. They make you do the work that allows Jesus to work in and through you. So the application from a lot of parables seems impossible. Seems like there's no way, there's no possible way for that to actually happen. And that's where we trust God to graciously work in and through us. Uh, So I love that definition of a parable. They're they're intended to take you off your equilibrium. um, And then you have to respond in faith uh, when you seek to apply them. Um, When I read a parable... I think through this in my mind, life as usual or business as usual cannot be the norm. When I read a parable, my life has, I have to walk away different. I have to walk away changed uh, when I read a parable. So we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 16, where Jesus is interact, or telling a parable about two different people. So if you have a Bible open there, Luke 16, or we're going to be looking at verses 19 uh, through 31. And uh, I'll explain more of the context as we get into the end of it. But uh, let's start with this. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that uh, he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father, Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So, love this parable. Uh, it has shaped and influenced much of my, my life um, reading this parable. And so I love to unpack it for you all this morning and hopefully it is helpful. But there's two people in this parable that are the main uh, centerpieces and Jesus is telling a story to make a point uh, and to knock you off your equilibrium. There's the first person, the rich man, who is habitually clothed. So the Greek word for that word clothed is habitually over and over again. It's his custom to be nicely clothed. Purple represents royalty, to be, to be clothed in royal clothing, uh, fine linen, and a word that I don't use very often, maybe you use it, but to, to eat sumptuous meals. And that just means to eat to bursting. 
uh, or extravagantly. So this, this rich man is clothed in royal clothing, fine linen, eats sumptuously every single day. It's his custom. It's not out of the ordinary. It is everything he does all day long uh, as fine, nice, uh, ex- excessive things. And then at his gate, so he's got gates. That's pretty good. They're doing well uh, in life. There was laid a poor man named Lazarus. So there's two mentions of a Lazarus in the New Testament. There's one that you're probably thinking of, the one that Jesus raised from the dead um, from Bethany and who is loved by Christ. Uh, there's an, also another Lazarus, and that's the Lazarus mentioned in this passage. Uh, and the way that you maybe think about the name Lazarus or maybe why Jesus is using the name Lazarus is Lazarus just mean the one whom, means the one whom God has helped. And so Jesus is telling a story to knock you off your equilibrium, right, to make us think about our life in more deep and significant ways, tells a story of a rich person who has lots of things and someone who, whom God helps along the way. And so there's these two people living their lives, uh, and the poor person, the one whom God helps, Lazarus, uh, has no means and eats the incidentals off the table of the rich man. So this is the setting of the parable. Jesus lays these two people before you to consider. And um, I don't know if you're supposed to identify with any of them specifically, but it's just uh, helping you say, here's two specific people. Now, context of Luke 16, Jesus is addressing uh, a group of people called the Pharisees, who are people that have lots of means and lots of religious education. They'd be some of the religious leaders of the day. And in Luke chapter 16, Jesus says to the ones who are uh, greedy, these Pharisees who are greedy, okay, so this parable is addressing some religious people who are very greedy, okay? And so we go on. In verse 22, it says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, being in torment. Torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Both men died. None of them made it. So in this parable that Jesus gives, both people die, and not one of them makes it. And then their lives flip. Their lives flip. This person, the rich man who has everything, has all the means and no needs. And then this poor person, Lazarus, has no means and all needs. And in this story, Jesus flips it. And the rich man has no means and all needs. And Lazarus has, let me get this all right, has all the means and no needs. He flips it. He flips it on them, altogether different. And let's look at their reactions, uh, or at least the rich man's reaction. We don't actually hear from Lazarus in the rest of this parable. We only hear from Abraham and the interactions with the the rich person. But let's look at the rich man's uh, requests. He asks for four things. He asked for four things. The first thing he asked for is mercy. He asked for mercy. So I don't know if you know what that word means. I, I'm a simple person. I like to, to define things. Mercy just means to be freely given what you don't deserve. Okay, or, or actually, that's grace. Mercy is to have withheld what you actually deserve. And so we've got a, a four-year-old, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, and a ten-year-old. There's lots of uh, problems in the home where people get in trouble, right, and they need to be corrected, right? And so we uh, withhold what they truly deserve sometimes. Sometimes they need punishment. Sometimes they need to be put in their room. And sometimes we just say, we're going to withhold what you truly deserve. That's mercy. 
And so you think in this parable, the rich man's going to ask for mercy. It's going to be a great thing that follows from his mouth. He's going to ask for mercy. And you'd think he'd say something like, please forgive me or make it right. But he asked this. He never asks to leave. He never asks to leave. You'd think his response would be, get me out of here. But he never, ever asks to leave. What does he do instead? He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and get Lazarus to come dip his finger in water and bring it to me to cool my tongue. In his mind, he's still a rich ruler. Even though everything's flipped, in his mind, in his heart, he is still a rich ruler who has the audacity to ask his you know, former servant or a person who sat outside his gates to come dip his finger in water and cool his tongue. In his mind, nothing has changed. His plea for mercy is to stay where he is and in his mind, stay in the position that he is in and ask a servant to come give him something. Nothing in his life has changed. And the last thing is he asked for water. He thinks he knows the solution. All that's going to uh, bring peace to me in this season, in this situation, in this moment, is going to be a little bit of water. And you'll see he, he makes two requests throughout this uh, parable. The first request is, give me water and cool my tongue. I think I know it will satisfy myself. And the next request is going to ask for something else where he thinks he knows the solution as well. So the rich man asks for mercy. He does not ask to leave. He asks for a servant to bring him water. And he thinks water will satisfy him. He thinks water will satisfy him. Interesting parable. Um, I'm going to share two stories this morning of things that I usually share with college students. Okay, so people that are thinking about the Christian life from time to time, when we interact with them, uh, maybe they have a spiritual background, maybe they don't have a spiritual background, but they're asking spiritual questions. And one of the traditional questions that we get when we talk with young people about life and the Christian life uh, is a, isn't your view of hell a little bit archaic? Because what's happening in this parable is Jesus is giving a description of what hell will be like. I know, Jason gave me a softball this morning, right? Real easy passage. Uh, he's going to give a picture of what hell is like. And, and if I'm honest, in my upbringing, my traditional view of hell was just that uh, informed by comic strips and cartoons. That would probably be all I ever thought of it. And a common uh, thought that people, young people have when they think of hell is just that there's, there's this kind of trap door in life. And then eventually, like, your life's going to end. And if you're not on God's right side, you'll just fall into hell. And no one wants to be there. And they're all crying to get out. And God's just laughing at them saying, ha ha, you're trapped. And you'll never get out. And that was, if I'm honest, that was my view of hell. There's people down there prodding people and inflicting pain on them. And that was my view of hell. But what does this parable tell us? Anyone that's in hell is there because they want to be there. Anyone that's in hell is there because they want to be there and they don't want out. Jesus is saying, when you are in hell, it's there because, you're there because you want to be there and you don't want to be out, be out of hell. Um, I read a good book this past summer that I had not read before. It's by C.S. Lewis. It was called The Great Divorce. Uh, and a very interesting read to help kind of reinforce this parable that Jesus is talking about. Or that Jesus is giving to us. And the Great Divorce is... Um, uh, you don't want to take it literally. It's just a story to help you think about this parable a little more meaningfully. And it's a story of a bus ride from hell to heaven. So quick, if you're a discerning person, uh, you would see in this passage that says that Abraham says that there's a chasm fixed between hell and heaven and you can't bridge it. So anyway, you would look at that and go, all right, this is a story for my helpful understanding, but I'm not going to take it literally, right? 
And so it's a story about a bus ride from hell to heaven, and people from hell go to heaven and interact with people in heaven. And so when C.S. Lewis describes hell, he does a couple things. First, he says it's always dusk, and it never, the sun never actually goes down, and the sun never rises, so there's no hope of tomorrow. No one has any needs amongst them, so there's no needs. So whatever you want in hell, you can have. You just think of it. If you want a big, beautiful house with a moat, you can have all those things. You just think of it. And so the, the sun is always setting. No one has any needs. So there's no need to be generous to one another and to serve one another. If you just have something that you need, you just think of it, and you possess it. And people are in conflict with one another because they're always thinking about themselves. So if you have a problem with your neighbor, uh, all you do is think of a somewhere else, uh, you know, think of a beautiful house somewhere else, and you move away from one another. And so all it is, and when he's describing hell, is everyone who has no needs forever expanding away from one another. And so it could take 10,000 years to go to someone you used to live uh, close by. And so it's an interesting thought experiment. So these people take a bus ride to heaven, okay? And this is why I love The Great Divorce, because I think it takes this parable and gives me some some things to think through. But this bus ride from hell to heaven, these people that come from hell and go to heaven are now standing in the presence of great beings. These would be people that are are Christians and stand in the presence of God. And the thing about the people at hell begin to understand about themselves is they look like ghosts. And so they begin to see that actually I'm very insignificant. They can't step on grass because the, the grass in heaven is so glorious that their feet can't handle it. And they begin to interact with these spirits in heaven uh, who begin to plead with them to come to faith. So there's all kinds of funny interactions. All these funny interactions, uh, uh, some of my favorite ones are there's a mother who spent her whole life controlling her son and she's in hell and all she longs to do is continue to control her son. So just like the rich person in this passage who has not changed his mind about who he is. He's still rich, he's still powerful, but he has, he's sitting in hell in torment, right? And so there's a mother who's just running around trying to control her son. There's a good person there who's saying, I don't need any help, I don't need any charity. And one of the interactions that I love is where the, the person who's in glory, the, the being that's, that's in heaven, says just ask for the bleeding charity. And so there's a good person who asks for, or, or, and um, asks for, says he doesn't need charity, he doesn't need help, um, just trust in his goodness. And there's people that are, there's funny characters like artists who just spend their whole days trying to figure out how their art is doing since they've passed. And so it's every, everybody is still living the same life they once lived. But as Tim Keller says in, in uh, Counterfeit Gods' book, he says, all hell is is people who possess all of their idols uh, inwardly and for themselves forever. And that's what Jesus is describing in this parable is the rich person in this parable has not changed in his mind. In his mind, he still has everything, but he's in torment, and all he needs to do is change his mind. Um, I love The Great Divorce because it depicts that in describing your idols, your and I's idols, if in hell would just be all we'd ever pursue for eternity. Interesting uh, thought uh, as we look at this passage. We'll look at verse 27 now. And he said... Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. So he has a second request. The first request is, send me a servant, right? The second request is this. Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. For if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. He said to him, if you do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So in the first request, he has a solution, right? Just dip some water 
and, and put it on my tongue and I'll be satisfied, right? In his second request, he says this, I know the solution. I know what will satisfy me in my first request and I know what will bring repentance to my family and friends in the second request. Just give them a show. Go scare them. Give them an emotional experience. Give them some sort of big event in front of them to help them see where I am and where they could go. He thinks he knows the answer again. This rich man just sits there knowing all the answers and it's clear that Jesus is describing, you know nothing. In this parable, Jesus is helping him or helping the people around him understand that this man knows nothing. Instead, he says, they have the prophets. They have the teachers. They have Moses. They need to listen. They need to listen. A lot going on in this passage, a lot going on in this parable, but how is it to knock you off balance? Knock you off balance. Things cannot continue as they have been. How should this actually change me? Well, like I said, Jesus is addressing a crowd of Pharisees in this section of Scripture who were lovers of money uh, and ridiculed Jesus for the things that he said. Um, And uh, he says this in Luke chapter 16 as context. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination inside of God. You are ones who seek to justify yourselves. I love that word justify. I love that word justify. And I love that Jesus uses this uh, word in this context because that's all this rich person is trying to do. I have means. I probably have wisdom. I have lots of things. And I'm just seeking to justify myself. That word justify is a word we don't use very often. It just means to uh, be declared right. If you stand before a judge guilty of a crime, you're not justified until he declares you innocent then you're justified. Then you stand in right standing with, before the judge, before the people. Um, but Jesus is saying, you Pharisees are lovers of money and you hear these things and ridicule me. You have all the means and no need. You have everything you need in the world, but no need of me. There's a story, so I love to talk about um, a proper view of hell or maybe a different view of hell than what most people have grown up understanding. Another thing I love to talk with college students about is who they truly are. Um, Who they truly are before God and before others. I spoke at a retreat with a couple college students from uh, Ohio, different Ohio schools. And one illustration I like to use to help level the playing field, because a lot of people think of the Christian life as just things that good people do. In fact, I remember sitting in the basement of Wells Library at IU with my brother, when he was a sophomore in college, and I remember doing a Bible study with him, and him saying, well, the Ten Commandments, right? Those are just things that Christians do. Christians do the Ten Commandments, and that's that's the difference between me and you, is that you try to do the Ten Commandments, right? It's like, no, that's not actually what a Christian is. So there's an illustration I use to help people understand what a Christian is, or maybe what this rich man needed all along. And so I always tell this story. Imagine we went up to West Lafayette to Mackey Arena, or maybe we came down to Bloomington and went to Assembly Hall. And it's a Friday night in Assembly Hall. We rent out Assembly Hall. And at one end of the stadium or the the arena is a five-story IMAX screen. And I'm assuming you all are well-known in your community. And so we're going to invite everyone you've ever known in your life. So everybody from elementary school, middle school, high school, college, 
all your friends, family, mom, dad, brother, sister, grandma, grandpa, everybody uh, is going to go to Assembly Hall uh, this upcoming Friday evening to watch a five-story IMAX screen of something. And in the middle of Assembly Hall, we're going to put a nice leather sofa, and we're going to seat you or me or just anyone in this room. It's, it's, it's your night, okay? And we're going to watch on that five-story IMAX screen everything you've ever done. Well, in front of everyone that you've ever known, by the way. Everything you've ever done in this world or thought about anyone. So it's a pretty magical camera, series of cameras we have. And we're going to watch everything you've ever done or thought about anyone in the presence of everyone you've ever known. So I spend time with college students all the time and ask, you know, where do you feel like you are before God? Or what is a Christian? Or how does someone become a Christian? And a lot of people say things that my brother once said. You just, you're the good guy. That's what you do. You're the good person. And I always share this illustration to remind everybody that the door is the same for everyone. The door is the same for everyone. I love me so much. And you love you so much. I'm my biggest fan. No one in my life is a bigger fan of me than me. I love me and you love you. But guess who is not going to stick around for their own showing of everything they've ever done or thought about anyone? I won't stick around. Will you? No. You'd run out the room, say, stop, please, don't do this, don't watch it, I don't want anyone to see it, no, no, no. That's a, that's a big problem. Because when people say, oh, I'm just a good person, I'm a moral person, or Christians are the moral people doing moral things, the problem is, I haven't really thought this through. I won't even stick around for my own show, and I love me so much. I love me so much, and I will not stick around for my own show on display. What does this tell us about this passage? All the rich man needed was to see, I might have resources, I might have means, but all I actually have is nothing before God. If God is holy and good and perfect and righteous, and he made me to know and enjoy and follow him and to worship him and to love him, and then I watch my life up on display and think, run, I have a great need. And what's Jesus doing with this parable? He's trying to help religious people who are well off on their religiousness see, you are so far from me. Your need is so great. You need so much. You might look like you have so much, but you need so much. And that's why Jesus says in the beginning of this section, you can't justify yourself. Because even if we said, all right, your life on display for the next year, you know you're going to justify yourself before God in the next year's performance, what would happen? You would still run out of the room. And that's why Jesus says, you will not justify yourselves. You need something else. An outside goodness, an outside perfection, an outside righteousness, you need something else. Or as uh, R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite teachers, says, all you need is need and few have it. All you need is need, and few have it. How will you justify yourselves? Well, in this passage, there's someone with lots of means and no need, and someone with no means and lots of need, and that person is ushered by the angels to the side of Abraham in heaven. The person with all the means and no needs goes to hell. 
interesting bit of word usage, thought usage. How is someone a Christian? How does someone become a Christian? Well, Jesus had all the means and no need and laid it all aside. And laid it all aside. And in Philippians it says, he took the form of servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He laid aside all that he had, all that he possessed. He had all the means, no needs, laid it all aside, became a servant to us, and offered himself on the cross on our behalf. What's the point of this passage? What's the point of this parable? You have great needs. I have great needs. I might have means. I might have fine clothing. I might eat well. But in the end, I'm still a needy, needy person in need of grace and forgiveness before God. I can't justify myself. I can't make myself right before God. This is an interesting passage because you could just read it at its surface and say, it sounds like Jesus is saying the gospel um, is for poor people. And people that aren't Christians are rich people, right? You could read that passage really like a, quickly and maybe get that conclusion. That's not it. Um, the gospel isn't poor people going to heaven and rich people going to hell. The purpose of the parable is to show us that Christians are poor and needy people before God. And they're the ones who are most aware of it and understand it and begin to search it out over the course of their life. So if you think about this passage and you think about application, how would you begin to apply this passage? Well, it knocks you off your center uh, if you think of yourself as a pretty good person most days. But I always love to think about my life on display and go, I am no better than anyone else. And it's natural if you've spent a long time in the Christian life, you begin to think you're maybe a little above people. We naturally incline ourselves to self-righteousness or thinking high of ourselves. If you're into fitness, you probably notice when people are not healthy, right? And because you want to fight that, uh, if you're really into fitness, if you're really good at uh, being uh, successful financially or in business, you tend to notice when people are not doing so well and maybe you could look at them kind of with a high eyes or high mind toward them. Um, and that's natural in the Christian life as you've gone on the Christian life to begin to think, I'm a little bit better than other people, right? It's natural to move in that direction. The Pharisees moved in that direction over the course of their life, right? It's continue to, continuing to think about how great they were before other people. But a true Christian, as Jesus says, is someone who has uh, all need all the time. Stands before God and says, all I have is need before him. I need his grace. I need his mercy. And unlike the rich person who thinks I need more water to make myself satisfied or I actually have the solution to this problem, he says, you are the solution to all of my problems in Jesus Christ. You offer me all the hope, all the, pro all the promise of my future in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So point of application is ask yourself, how do I perceive myself when I compare myself to others. When I think about others, do I think of I've done quite well and I'm doing better than most, or do I go, I'm just as needy as anyone else? I might be more well-off than them, I might be more highly educated than them, I might have a bigger house than them, but I'm just as needy as anyone else before God. If we watch their life on display and we watch my life on display, we would all wanna leave the room. I have a great need. Um, the other application, I think it's not necessarily implied in this passage, but I think it could be an application of this parable to knock you off of center. A second application of this passage could be, be if you have resources, if you have means, and that might not just mean financially, if you're a naturally hospitable person, 
if you're naturally warm toward other people, if you love to serve other people, if you have, uh, maybe it's financial resources to give generously, but I think this passage is also calling us to action too. To not just view ourselves appropriately and correctly before God as needy people who need um, the grace of God, but also if you have resources or talents or gifts to use those in service of others. And so one super simple application that we've been working on in our home right now is we live on the east side of Indianapolis. Um, it's a very, there's a lot of people that just kind of stand on the corner and uh, ask for things on the, the, the street as we're driving anywhere, wherever we drive to. And so we've been asking ourselves, well, we have some means, we have some resources, how can we serve those around us that have needs? And so it was a simple question of, we have some resources, how can we use those to serve other people, uh, people that might be similar to the the needy person in this parable. And so just quickly as a family, brainstorm, we're going to go to these places and buy these groceries and get these brown bags and write these notes to these people. And then whenever we're there, our kids pull them out of the back uh, and, you know, throw them up into the front seat and we give them to the people around us in the city. And so we're teaching our kids or trying to live this passage uh, in practical application. If there's people around us that have needs, let's use the resources, the means that God has given us to help those and serve those in needs. Or need. It might be a million different applications for each of you in this congregation, um, but something to ponder. So how do application, how do I perceive myself toward other people? A true Christian, I am, I am nothing before any of these people. I'm just as needy as anyone else in this room. And then if you have some sort of love, compassion, means, needs, resources along the way, how can I use those to love and serve other people? Interesting parable uh, for our consideration this morning. So um, from the Casey family, I want to thank you for your generosity all these 15 years in loving and serving college students um, and helping us be there. And um, I, I love the story that Jason shared this morning because I remember uh, my first day meeting John Gallman, uh, lifting with him. So we went and lifted in one of the, the wrecks at IU and just kind of figuring out where he was at spiritually, connecting to some dear friends that were leaders in the ministry and began to take off in the Christian life uh, during his time of college. And that's why I love college ministry because it's the most unlikely season you'd think no one wants to walk with God in college. But that's where you see people just begin to take off spiritually. And it's my story and maybe many of yours as well. Um, it can be a really thriving season, uh, beginning to trust the Lord for growth. Uh, so thank you for your generous partnership all these years. I'm going to pray. And Ben, our, our elder Ben, is going to come up and lead us through the communion um, session of, or section of this service. So thank you. Lord God, um, we don't want to be people that live... Uh, finding our hope and significance and identity in the clothing and the vocation and the sumptuous eating. Uh, but God, we want to see ourselves before you as needy people who need your grace. And we thank you that Jesus, who had all the means and no needs, left them aside or laid them aside and offers us a hope in salvation in, in him. So I pray for anyone in this room that doesn't know you, um, that they would consider coming to trust in Jesus alone. And I pray for these precious people that they would love and treasure you uh, and live in light of this uh, paradigm-shifting parable that you've offered us this morning. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.